Well, good evening, and thanks for coming along this evening. It's good to see a number of friends here with us as well. As Adam has mentioned, we're continuing our series on Easter journeys, and our passage this evening is John chapter 20, the first 18 verses. Now, if you've been at our church this morning, you should be able to recite these verses by heart because this is actually the third time that this passage will have been read in our church this morning or today. So I'm not, you'll not be hearing anything new um, except perhaps the odd heresy thrown in. But let's read our passage, uh, John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means Teacher, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So the Easter journeys that we're looking at this evening are some of the various journeys made to and from the tomb of the Lord Jesus on the first Easter morning when he rose from the dead. Now, in the passage we just read, there are three people identified whose journeys I want to focus on. There were others involved in the, this, the activities of this morning, Easter morning, they're mentioned in the other gospel accounts. But John identifies three people. There's Mary Magdalene, there's Peter, and there's himself, to whom he gives the code name, the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
So my brief this evening is to consider the journeys which each of these people made and what they learned as a result of their journey. Of course, the journeys were not just physical journeys. They were journeys in understanding, in their faith, and in the development of their faith. One of the reasons why journeys like this are so important for us to look at is because all of us are on a journey in our lives, particularly in responding to what we hear about the Lord Jesus. Some people may be on a journey to find out more of the truth about who Jesus is. Some people may be running away from what they were taught when they were young. They don't believe, for example, that Jesus rose from the dead. And others feel the need to be making better progress on their journey as a Christian to develop their personal relationship with God based on a better understanding of God's plans for us and his destiny for us. So as we consider these three journeys, do bear in mind at the same time your own journey in your own life. Which direction are you heading as far as the Lord Jesus is concerned? Are you making any progress if you're a Christian? So bear, bear that in mind as we look at these three journeys. So first of all, we'll look at Mary Magdalene. As Ryan told us this morning, Mary Magdalene's past had been very torturous. Luke tells us that in her earlier days, she had been possessed by seven demons. And it's Mark who tells us that the Lord had delivered her from those evil spirits. The Lord had turned her whole life around. And Mary became part of a, a group of women who supported the Lord both practically and financially and supported his disciples too as they moved about the country. Mary Magdalene was also one of those women who stood by the cross of the Lord. These women had identified publicly with the Lord at the time when most of the Lord's disciples had run away. And as Mary saw the Lord dying on the cross, we can only imagine the fears that must have been arising in her heart. Would her life continue to be free from those evil influences that at once controlled her? It was her faith in the Lord and her relationship with the Lord which had given her life purpose and meaning. Was all that going to change now? Perhaps there was a fear that she might somehow become plagued again by the evil influences which the Lord Jesus had rescued her from. And yet amidst all her fears and her grief, Mary was still driven by her love and loyalty to the Lord, even when he was dead. She and the other woman wanted to show the utmost respect for the body of the Lord by burying his body in keeping with the normal Jewish customs by bringing spices uh, and perfumes. They obviously had no expectation whatever that the Lord Jesus would rise physically from the dead. But when Mary discovered that the tomb was wide open and the body of the Lord was missing, she was distraught. She immediately believed that someone had taken the body uh, not the disciples, because she immediately ran to Peter and John and said, 
they have taken away the Lord's body, whoever they might be. Perhaps she thought it was the Jewish authorities. We'll come to Peter and John later, but again, it's clear that the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead never occurred to Mary. And while Peter and John then were running to the tomb, Mary returned more slowly to the tomb. And even after Peter and John had left the tomb, Mary stayed on weeping and feeling utterly helpless. For the first time, it seems, she looked more closely into the tomb and she saw two men there. Now, it's interesting that she didn't ask them, have you taken away the Lord's body? She just explained, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have laid him. Perhaps she thought they were just as puzzled as she was. And it was at this point that she heard someone behind her. She turned from looking into the dark tomb to see someone silhouetted against the morning sunlight. She didn't know who it was, but her assumption was very telling. She thought the Lord was the gardener. Now, she seemed to have recognized that this person was a person of some authority because she did ask him, have you taken it away? She thought he was in charge of the whole area, so there was something different about his bearing. But the fact that she thought he was the gardener, the implications of that are amazing. Let's just remind ourselves about the new status which the Lord Jesus had at this moment, which he had received when he was raised from the dead. Because Christ was not only raised physically, but he was exalted. And here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, combining the Lord's exaltation with his physical resurrection. He speaks of the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The Lord himself said, even before his ascension, all power and authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And he had that when he was raised from the dead. And that is the person who was now standing before Mary Magdalene. Not just the Messiah, not just the Son of God, but the one who had been appointed to a position far above all rule and authority, all above all power and dominion for the rest of eternity. And Mary thought he was a gardener. Perhaps Mary uh, had rushed past him earlier and seen him working in the garden. The Lord didn't regard Mary's assumption as an insult. In fact, I think he would have been rather pleased at that thought. He had deliberately chosen, if you like, that humble guise, even in his new highly exalted status. Now, why would the Lord, after his resurrection like this, hide his exalted position? Why does he not stand before Mary in all his shining glory? There's an important reason which tells us so much about the Lord Jesus himself. 
Now, I'm not an expert in English literature, but there are stories uh, in our literature, and I think also in the Bible, which has the same the basic plot line. There's a person of very high social standing who falls in love with a commoner girl who would normally never come into his social circle. If he approached her as Lord of the Manor, she might well be impressed with his greatness and she might be very respectful. But while the important gentleman might be able to win her respect and even admiration, he could never win her heart because of the huge gulf between them. He could never bring her to see beyond his high position and to see him as a person in his own right. And so the story goes, he doesn't introduce himself in his official capacity. Instead, he takes on the role of a farm worker and in the course of his work, he encounters the girl and introduces himself quietly. She now has no fear and no sense that she must keep her distance. He allows her to get to know him as a person and to make up her own mind about him based on his character. And the story usually ends with her falling in love with him. And eventually, when the time is right, when she feels secure enough in the relationship, he feels he can now reveal to her who he really is. But he does have to manage that with great care. And he has to wait until she is totally secure in the relationship. Otherwise, she might still withdraw back and keep her distance out of respect. And that's usually where the stories end. But if I could say it reverently, the Lord Jesus is not interested in merely impressing people with his greatness. He does not want to win our subservience. He wants to win our hearts. He loves us. And he wants us to share in a loving relationship with him. He wants us to respect him for who he is in his character. And if his heavenly position and glory would be an impediment to that, he is quite prepared to hide his glory. Of course, his grand plan is to bring us to the point where we can confidently behold the Lord's glory, rejoice in his exalted position, but without in any way drawing back in our personal relationship out of a well-meaning sense of awe and worship. How will the Lord enable us to do that? The Lord will bring us to see his glory. He will not hide his glory eternally. But the way he will make us comfortable with his position and glory is very radical. He will do it by giving us a glory and an exalted position which matches his own. Uh, we read just a few pages back in John's Gospel, the night before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus prayed two things among others in John 17. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And he prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. One day, 
we as Christians will stand by the side of the Lord as his bride, glorious, not cowering, but confident in our relationship with the highly exalted God. And we will be regarded as glorious by heaven. The Lord will not be ashamed of us. We will not feel that we have no right to be there because the Lord is preparing us now for glory and for that exalted position. As the Lord stood before Mary, he was quite happy to be regarded as a gardener because I think he has always, from all eternity, been a gardener at heart. We were reminded again this morning that at the very beginning of creation, in the Garden of Eden, it was the Lord himself who planted the garden. He personally designed it. He chose the trees and the plants and where, how to arrange them in relation to the rivers that flowed uh, through the garden. And he laid it out. And Adam and Eve's job was just to look after it. But God himself designed and planted the first garden. And in the very last chapter of the Bible, we discover that the new creation will have and will be like a garden with flowing rivers, with trees that constantly bear fruit, like a new but even greater garden of Eden beyond our wildest imagination. And that garden will be personally designed by the Lord. Even when the Lord Jesus was on the cross, he was thinking of his life after his own death, and he described it as being in a garden. He turned to the thief beside him who had become a convert, a believer in the Lord, and said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the word for garden, the Persian word for garden. Even the place where the Lord was crucified was near, very close to the garden where the Lord was going to be buried. And even when he was on the cross, I'm sure the Lord looked at times over to that garden as he thought uh, that before too long, he would be looking forward to tending that particular garden. Mary Magdalene didn't recognize the Lord who stood before her at first. She couldn't see clearly because she was weeping, but her hearing was good and she was she instantly recognized the Lord by his gentle and tender voice when he spoke her name. Mary's response was to, to hold on to the Lord as though she didn't want him ever to leave her uh, again. Can I just mention something in passing um, in light of some of the false uh, ideas that have been floated around by certain fictional books such as the Da Vinci Code? Um, you'll have noticed that when Mary was speaking to the two angels that she thought were two men, she said she referred to the Lord as my Lord. That's how she referred to the Lord as she was speaking to others. And in her moment of realization as to who the Lord is, when all her feelings flooded uh, and she moved to the Lord, the name that she gave him was teacher. 
That was the most precious role in her life that the Lord had brought. It was the Lord's teaching that had inspired that love and loyalty and devotion to him. And so Mary's close relationship with the Lord was as a disciple and as a helper in the service of the Lord. But now the Lord had to start to bring Mary on a spiritual journey. He has to teach her that their relationship was going to be raised to a new level. She didn't perhaps want it to change. She thought, we're going back to the old days, the way it used to be. But the Lord says, no, we're having to move on. And he gives her an important message to convey to his disciples. First, he calls his disciples brothers. He says, go to my brothers. I'm just looking around at the the experts here. Is this the first time the Lord ever refers to his disciples as brothers? I think it is. You can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. But what a change that represented. He talks of my God and your God. He talks of my father and your father, very deliberately conveying the point that the disciples were now being brought into the same relationship with God that Christ himself had. In other words, in this new relationship that the Lord was bringing in, believers, his disciples, including Mary and the other disciples, were now as close to God as the Lord Jesus was. He had now elevated the relationship to a much higher level. This is a clear statement of something amazing which is expounded in more detail in the book of Hebrews. God the Father now loves us as much as he loves his Son. Christ's destiny, a magnificent destiny in the ages to come, is our destiny. All God's future plans for his Son are now to be shared for all eternity with his followers. That's the message Mary was privileged to bring to the disciples. So let's now move to Peter and John. I'll take them together just for the sake of time. The Lord reveals the truth of his resurrection to Peter and John in a very different way than he did to Mary. I mean, the Lord deliberately does not appear to Peter and John, even when they were in the garden at the tomb. The Lord was probably there working at the garden. He saw Peter and John look at the tomb, go into it, come out puzzled and leaving. And he didn't appear to them the way he had to Mary. He deliberately does that. He doesn't start by giving them the experience that Mary had. He forces them to arrive at their conclusion about him based on two very different things from Mary. Firstly, he was forcing them to examine the physical evidence of the empty tomb and the grave clothes of the Lord. First, Peter and John realized that the body of Jesus had not been stolen. I mean, what robber in his right mind would break into a tomb guarded by soldiers and take such a long time 
firstly to unwind all the strips of linen, and then to put them back again to rearrange them in the original order and place as they had been. Peter and John had to look at the historical evidence, the physical evidence, and work out that the body of Jesus had not been stolen. They also knew that they had not taken it. They had been hiding out of fear of the Jews. And so uh, they started to think through the implications of that. And the second piece of evidence of his resurrection, which the Lord gave to Peter and to John, was the witness of the women who had seen the Lord, who said they had seen the Lord. The disciples at this stage hadn't seen the Lord, but the women came and they said, we have seen the Lord. The disciples had to weigh the testimony of those who claimed to be eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. Sadly, the disciples seemed initially to have dismissed what the women said. So why did the Lord treat the disciples so differently from the women? It would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to appear to the disciples. He had to hold himself back from doing that. Why did the Lord force them to discover the truth based on indirect evidence, on historical observations about the empty tomb and the te testimony of other people who claimed to have seen the Lord? I think the Lord was preparing Peter and John and the other disciples for their future mission. They were going to have to preach to skeptical crowds who did not find it easy to believe in the resurrection. They would be preaching to people who had never personally seen the risen Lord Jesus. People like us, we've never seen the Lord Jesus. He has never appeared to us. Some people today complain that it's unreasonable to be expected to believe in something which happened 2,000 years ago, purely on the testimony of other people and purely on what historical evidence, actually considerable historical evidence that we have. They say that would be unreasonable for God. If Jesus would only appear to me personally, then I would believe. But that argument carries no weight. Every day in our courts throughout our land, Juries are called upon to decide beyond reasonable doubt whether certain events have happened, as someone claimed. And the jury never gets the chance to witness those events themselves. They are presented simply with factual evidence and they hear personal witness statements. They have to evaluate the truthfulness of the witnesses they have to judge whether the evidence has been fabricated. And on the basis of all this direct evidence, juries judge quite satisfactorily whether or not something has been proven. So it is perfectly reasonable to be asked to evaluate the resurrection today on the basis of written witness statements and historical evidence. But it does require us to be prepared to consider carefully and honestly and with an open mind the actual evidence and to seek it out, to look at the claims and to weigh up the alternative explanations, 
because something did happen and it requires an explanation. We don't have time to go into it all, the, the different possible explanations this evening, but you cannot justifiably dismiss the resurrection of Jesus without looking forensically at the evidence. And this is what Peter and John were going to have to challenge public antagonistic audiences to do. So they had to learn what it feels like themselves to evaluate the evidence, in, to have indirect evidence uh, as they had, rather than a physical appearance. They had to learn what their unbelieving listeners would feel like. And so the Lord was bringing them on the same sort of journey which their listeners across the world would have to follow. Mary Magdalene and the other women were never going to have to do that. And so the Lord dealt with them differently. Now, just looking at Peter and John, uh, they were rather different in their reactions. John was certainly more agile physically, but he does seem to have been more agile uh, how can I put this kindly? Uh, in, he's quicker to see the implications and quicker to recognize the Lord. In the next chapter, in chapter 21, it's John who has to tell Peter that the person he's looking at on the shore is the Lord. Uh, John was very quick to see the implications of things, but not so Peter. Perhaps Peter had more sorrows on his mind that was slowing his thinking. Perhaps he was thinking of the last communication that he had with the Lord Jesus. It was in the high priest's courtyard. Peter, for the third time, had just vehemently denied knowing the Lord. And at that moment, he caught the eye of the Lord Jesus, who was being mocked and abused uh, just across the courtyard. And it says, at that moment, the Lord looked at Peter. Peter thought, he's probably heard what I've just said, because he had done it with a curse and with an oath. And that was the last communication Peter had with his Lord. He turned and went out and wept bitterly. He had no opportunity to apologize to the Lord. It was a private moment which none of the other disciples knew anything about. But Peter's knowledge that the last thing he had done was to deny his Lord when the Lord needed perhaps him most, that was a heavy burden on Peter's heart. Perhaps Peter thought he was going to have to carry that burden with him for the rest of his life with no way of knowing if he had been forgiven. So when the thought flicked across his mind that Jesus might possibly have risen from the dead. Peter was cautious, more cautious perhaps than John. He was careful not to jump to conclusions. He didn't want to believe something just because of wishful thinking. Perhaps he remembered how quick Herod, that evil King Herod, had been to believe that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead to ease his own conscience. Peter didn't want to make that same mistake. So the Lord gave Peter time to make his own journey. And eventually, the Lord Jesus did reveal himself personally and directly to Peter and to the other disciples. 
But their personal experience of the risen Lord only came after they had considered the implications of the evidence and listened to the witnesses. I don't know where you are in your personal response to the claims that the New Testament makes about who the Lord Jesus is and about his resurrection. But once we accept and realize that Jesus is alive and is active in our world today, it changes our whole worldview. We realize that the whole new status we have in God's eyes is radical. It changes our whole purpose of our living and it changes our destiny and what we are living for. As someone has said, the resurrection changes everything. Let's just close in prayer before I hand back to Adam. Our Father, we thank you for the authentic and honest accounts that we have preserved for us of the reactions of your followers as they wrestled with the evidence and with the appearing of the Lord Jesus. But Father, we thank you that the world today is still reaping the harvest of the consequences of the Lord's resurrection. As we think of the countless millions who have been rescued from darkness, from fear and superstition of pagan religions, to discover that the God of this world became human so that he could have bring us into a loving relationship with himself. And more than that, to bring us to a grand eternal destiny that still lies before us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that you entrusted this great plan into his hands, that he carried out that plan so graciously, so intensely, and so lovingly. And that many of us here this evening are now living in the good of that. We pray for those who have not yet come to this point of discovery, that they will, with an open mind, explore what the Scripture says and look at the evidence and come to that same discovery. In Jesus' name, amen.